Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Do you like my new theme music? I love it. My bestie DJ Parlay made it for me. I love that song by Randy Crawford, the richness of her voice and then also the lyrics. But I feel like the podcast is in a different place from where it started. I feel like it needed a different mood, a different energy. So I asked him very graciously if he could make something. I don't know. You know me. So so do what I like. You know what I like. So he did this. And it's amazing. And I love it. So thank you so much, DJ Parlay. If you'd like to check out his sound, his mixes, his beats, you should follow him on Instagram at, at It's Parlay. I-T-S-P-A-R-L-E. And yes, that's an ad, but I didn't get paid and he didn't ask me to do it. It's just, I just love my people and I want us all to win. So thank you again, DJ Parlay. I love my new theme music. You're the bestest bestie. Thank you. I'm in an amazingly good mood. I got really great news right before I was about to tape this podcast. No, I cannot return to LA just yet. The city is still closed until somewhere around July 4th, but I may return home before that. Like I feel like I've overextended my stay on the East Coast. Like I miss my own bed. So at some point, sooner than later, I will be headed back to California. Moving along, my good news today is because last week's episode, I was really sad about the deaths of three major cultural contributors. And I was like, yo, what are we going to do about a tribute? You got to give Betty Wright a couple songs. Little Richard needs his own full tribute. Like you got to let Bruno Mars come out and just go wild with that ish. Also said Andre Harrell, huge cultural influence to me. And I joked last week, I was like, I don't even need to call over to BET. I know BET is on this. And lo and behold, BET announced yesterday that there will be a tribute to Andre Harrell this Sunday, May 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The press release says the tribute is going to air commercial-free. That's a big deal because, you know, BET loves some commercials. Commercial-free on BET, BET Jams, BET Soul, Revolt TV, and it's going to stream on some other places as well. I am very pleased. The broadcast will feature special guest tributes by Chris Rock, Mariah Carey, Jamie Foxx, Babyface, Naomi Campbell, Lee Daniels, Robin Thicke, Russell Simmons, Kimora Lee Simmons, and Clarence Avant. Clarence Avant, the Black Godfather on Netflix. If you haven't seen that documentary, it's a must watch. Also notable, I heard a rumor of, but I didn't know it was a full go. BET has been working on a three-part miniseries based on the rise of Uptown Records. I'm going to guess it's something along the lines of what they did with the new edition and Bobby Brown stories, which were really, really, really well done. Stay with what works. That worked well. We like that. We all like that. This makes me so happy. I need a little joy in my life. I think we all do. Your President Trump is a motherfucker. His latest shenanigan, and there are many, we'll discuss several, but his latest shenanigan, he's refusing to have a ceremony to hang Obama's portrait in the White House. This is a 40-year tradition. 
Many presidents have done it when their predecessors are from opposing parties, even when they run hard campaigns against each other. It's just how it's done. But Trump has refused. To which I say, how petty, how small of you. How trifling. How disrespectful. I am amazed at how one man can fall not just short of the office of the president of the United States, but how he can fall so short as a man. This is childish. This is a beef of his own making. Obama, until very, very recently, has said next to nothing about Trump. While Trump has attacked, 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 blamed, just constant. He just keeps up some constant shit. You're just so bitter and so racist and so fueled by and filled with hate that you would do something so ignorant. Back in 2012, Barack Obama did invite George W. Bush to the White House for the unveiling of his portrait. And he said at the time, quote, we may have our differences politically, but the presidency transcends those differences. I'm going to say this and I don't even think it's crazy. I am convinced that Trump wants to make sweet love to Barack Obama. There's a thin line between love and hate and the way that Obama lives rent-free in Trump's mind, it's love. There have been men I have dated, been in whole relationships with, who I have been deeply in love with, who I have thought about less than Trump thinks about Barack Obama. He's so obsessed with him. I suppose this banning is for the best though. Because it's not like the Obamas really want to go. Do you remember Michelle Obama at inauguration? Mother was desperate to get out the White House. She didn't even do her hair that day. She put it right back in a snatchback bun and looked sour all day because she did not want to be at that inauguration. Could you really see her going back to the White House the way she talks about it so bad? I can't see Barack Obama and President Trump standing there for a photo op, shaking hands, looking buddy-buddy. Not after the horrible things that Trump has said about him, I think if Obama showed up, Trump would do some like radically racist shit. And like, do you really want to see Barack Obama in an election year looking all chummy with a fool like Trump? It serves no one. Trump wants to paint Obama as his adversary who must be defeated, even though he's not running. Obama can't like Trump. It's impossible. And it's not even just like a professional distaste. It's like as a man, he can't respect him in any way. It'd be impossible. So I can't see it anyway. So it's probably for the best that Trump is not extending this invite. As much as I want Barack Obama to have all that he is due, if the tradition is you go to the White House and you get your fancy celebration for the unveiling of your portrait, your portrait and the first lady's portrait, I would like him to have that. But I can wait until Biden does it in January. I'm okay with that. Patience. Patience. Speaking of Obama responses... For the last three years, Trump has been coming at Obama blatantly, not even sideways, not even like sneak attacks, ill subliminals. He's just going right for the jugular, talking about all the things that Obama has done wrong, blaming Obama every time something goes wrong. And President Obama has been relatively quiet until recently, shortly after the only president that we acknowledge endorsed his former VP, Joe Biden. He was on a private call with members of the Obama Alumni Association. And during that call, he referred to the response to COVID-19 as, quote, an absolute chaotic disaster. The call was, quote, and unquote, leaked. 
And I put leaked in quotes because for eight years of the Obama presidency and the three and a half years that have passed since he left office, there have been no leaks. Now, suddenly in an election year, things are leaking. Okay, dad. Sure. Okay. I'm not mad at him, though. Somebody needed to say it. But notably, he did not mention Trump. Not so long after that quote and unquote leaked call. President Obama gave a commencement speech for HBCUs. And in that speech, he said, quote, This pandemic has fully, finally torn back the curtain on the idea that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing. A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. He encouraged the students, if the world's going to get better, it's going to be up to you. With everything suddenly feeling like it's up for grabs, this is your time to seize the initiative. Nobody can tell you anymore that you should be waiting your turn. Nobody can tell you anymore this is how it's always been done. More than ever, this is your moment, your generation's world to shape. Again, no mention of the current occupant of the White House. However, Carl Rove, who's the former senior advisor to GW, hot tails his ass to Fox News to slam Barack Obama for the speech. And he says, It is so unseemly for a former president to take the virtual commencement ceremony for a series of historically black colleges and universities and turn it into a, quote, political drive-by shooting. Nigga, what? Rove added that Obama was slandering President Trump in that commencement speech. Once again, Obama mentioned no names. We can infer that he was referring to Trump and Pence, but it's a whole lot of other mofos out here dropping the ball. Governors of Georgia, Florida, Texas, I'm referring to you. They didn't respond. Only Carl Rove on behalf, I guess, of Trump and Pence, which I was like, hit dogs holler. He didn't say who did wrong. Now you're jumping out there to be like, oh, he's he's slandering. Okay, so you think that they did wrong. He didn't give a name, but those two people came to your mind. You don't think they're doing right either, bruh. You just mad he said it. I'm also very outdone at the idea of Karl Rove thinking that Obama should be like above it all, that he should not attack Donald Trump. If anyone has a right to go for Trump's jugular, it's Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Barack Obama, even these little like jabs that he's taking, he's not even going for the jugular, not half in the way that Trump goes after him. Let's start with Trump and Obama and his birther mess, which was racist and xenophobic to pretend that the man wasn't an American citizen. Trump has been on a nonstop mission to dismantle everything Obama's done. Every time Trump does anything wrong, including the handling of this pandemic, he blames it on Barack Obama. Trump's favorite thing is, uh, the warehouses were empty. The shelves were barren. Obama was supposed to prepare us for this pandemic and we had nothing. Sir, you're like a good three and change years into the office. I could see if you came in at three weeks. I could see if you came in at three months. I'll even give you year one to be like, yo, bro, left us nothing. Dude, you're in year three. What happened in all what happened in year one, year two and year three that you never were like, you know what? Ain't nothing here. We should probably stock this up because the last guy didn't do the job. That's on you, bruh. 
When he stays with Barack Obama's name in his mouth, been talking greasy about that man for years. In the streets, people get cut for less. All you got was a leaked phone call and a jab and a commencement speech, sir. Trump has said Obama did a terrible job. He was a disaster as president. He will go down as one of the worst presidents in the history of our country. He called Obama the founder of ISIS. His latest thing is this Obamagate mess, which everyone is like, what exactly are you talking about? And Trump is like, you know, you know what it is. No, no, we we don't know. Trump says Obama has committed some sort of crime and somehow Obama manipulated the federal quote unquote deep state bureaucracy to set Trump up to fail in his first few weeks as president. And somehow this resulted in the firing of Michael Flynn. I was reading something in the Washington Post and they were like, yeah, this all goes back to how Trump used to talk about Obama had his wires tapped, which I was like, what? We back on that again? Without actually defining Obamagate, he says it makes Watergate look like small time. Some terrible things happen and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the coming weeks. Huh? He did a press conference and he was asked point blank about it again. And he was like, you know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read it in the newspapers. But the newspapers are asking the same thing. They're all like, what what are you talking about? Like you're saying the man is guilty of something like either lay out what he's guilty of or shut the fuck up. You know, Obama's not running for president. His vice president is. I guess that's the logic here is Biden is popular because he was Obama's VP. And so if you can sully Barack Obama's name, then you can sully Joe Biden's name by proxy. I would like to point out to Trump that remember how that time he claimed he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and no one would care. That's right about how folks are about Biden right now. The idea of a second term of a Trump presidency is so repugnant. There's nearly nothing that Joe Biden can do that people will vote for you over him. You could tell me Barack Obama shot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and I'd be like, well, that's a goddamn shame. I'm still voting for Biden though. I'm just saying. But I really need the man to either like speak your piece, state your issue, shut the fuck up. And I guess I shouldn't be because the audacity of mediocre white men should never ever surprise me. Certainly not at this point. But the Karl Rove is just like, oh, it was a political drive-by. One, How dare you criticize Barack Obama after all the shit that he's endured from Trump? But I find like a lot of people really do think that women, people of color, there's like this expectation that like we should always take the high road. We should be stoic in the face of adversity. We should go high when others choose to go low, which is a choice. If you would like to act like you had a praying grandmother and like you have good sense, God bless you. I'm not mad at you. I'm also not mad at people who decide to act a fool in the face of foolishness. Sometimes you need to match people's crazy because they don't respect anything else. I'm tired of black folk and women folk always being expected to have a moral compass that so many other people lack. Why? Me being pious while you get to be a prick is not equality. It's forcing me to suppress my feelings and to center yours and get the fuck out of here with that.
I can act like I have sense or I cannot act like I have sense. And honestly, the way I'm perceived doesn't change one way or the other. Here you have a man who's been mostly silent as he's been attacked over the last three years. He finally says something. And the first thing Karl Rove goes to is some stereotype of ghetto black men. A drive-by? Barack Obama? The former president of the United States who was raised in Hawaii? When do you think he had time for his gang affiliation? When he was trying to get into Harvard or after he got out? That's what you see black people as. It doesn't matter where they went to school. It doesn't matter how they were educated. It doesn't matter their professional success. If you are a hardcore racist, the only thing you see is stereotypes of me. So whether I act a fool or whether I endure your foolishness, it's all the same shit. So I should do whatever makes me sleep better at night. For some people, that's taking the high road. They feel closer to God. Okay. For other people, by which I mean people like me, I like to curse a mofo out, drink a V8 and sleep peacefully. The best sleep I've ever had is after I flipped on a mofo that deserved it. Some very good folks had a better breakdown of this situation than I did. Because again, I just call you a bunch of F-moms and move on about my life. An ex-Obama spokesman said, Carl Rove, quote, absolutely chose these words on purpose. And he pointed out that Fox News was just using Rove to, quote, stoke racial resentment. Because drive-by, total dog whistle word. Keith Boykin, who is one of my favorite writers. I haven't seen his writing enough. Keith, if you hear this, please write more, even if it's just tweets. I love your insights and the way you throw a sentence together. But this was Boykin's take on it. He said, quote, if Karl Rove thinks a black president speaking truth to black students is, quote, a political drive by shooting, then a white guy lying about a black president's birth certificate for five and a half years must be a damn cross burning. You see why I love him? A good writer is hard to come by. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. In other petty news, and literally talking about Trump, I feel like I'm talking about the real housewives of some major American city. The jabs, the shade, the pettiness, like the ongoing cattiness, like it's one and the same. One is rather entertaining because there's no stakes to it. The other one is our political system, which is sad. Your president, because I don't claim him, the current occupant of the White House, announced earlier this week that he is taking hydroxychloroquine as a protective measure against exposure to the coronavirus. I thought we let go of the idea of hydroxychloroquine after the VA found it was linked to higher death rates in patients. And then after that, the FDA warned that it caused heart problems. Trump defended his decision by pointing out that the VA study that found that people with COVID-19 were more likely to die if they were on the drug. Trump pointed out that those people were old and had underlying conditions. They were part of a risky population. So he doesn't understand why it would affect him negatively. 
To which I and also Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi were like, um, sir, may we point out to you that you are part of the high risk population. For months now, scientists have been talking about the underlying conditions that are more likely to make people susceptible to illness. One of them is age. President Trump is 73. There are other underlying conditions that scientists have repeatedly mentioned. One of them is being overweight. Because he is the president of the United States, we do know what he says his weight is. Trump says that he is 6'3", and he says his weight is 243. I know he's lying. He knows he's lying. And I'm not going to judge him for lying about his weight because what's on my license and what's on my scale? Actually, right now they're kind of close. So I understand people lie about their weight. I'm not going to judge him on that. But sir, like we can we can take a look at you and we can see that you are not, how shall I say, in your fittest form. That when scientists say that COVID-19 is likely to affect people who are overweight, that you fit into that category. You may want to consider that you're more susceptible to health complications than, say, someone younger and someone in better health. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked about Trump's new drug of choice, and she did not mince words. She says, quote, he's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved by scientists especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group, which is morbidly obese, they say. So I think that it's not a good idea. That's what she told CNN on Monday night. Trump was pissed. Trump responded to Pelosi's assessment of his health, and he said, quote, Pelosi is a sick woman. She's got a lot of... She's got a lot of problems, a lot of mental problems. (laughs) Yo, I cannot believe this is the president of the United States talking like this. It's like reading something from the Real Housewives of Atlanta reunion, which was a complete shit show. I don't watch the show. I just saw the clips online. Portia was talking about somebody's boobs, social distancing from one another. Kenny was like the only man you've ever had on the show was the one Nene was also fucking. <laughs> like what? And Candy just looked appalled. Like her eyes were huge. Like she was like, I can't believe this is happening. Andy put cards over his face. <laughs> Pelosi responds back. She says she doesn't care. The president says terrible things about her all the time. But she defended her morbidly obese comment. She's been getting some flack about it, but she went on MSNBC and she said, look, I was only quoting what the doctors say about him and I was being factual in a very sympathetic way. She also went on to say that she was giving him a dose of his own medicine. One time at a campaign rally in New Hampshire, Trump said of a supporter in the crowd, that guy's got a serious weight problem. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because it's so crazy, not because I'm amused by what he said. It's just so crazy that the president of the United States is out here talking to people like this. He says, oh, let me compose myself. That guy's got a serious weight problem. Go home, start exercising. How dare you? As a man of extra full size, how dare you tell someone else they have a weight problem and they need to exercise? Another time, 
before he was president and he owned the Miss Universe competition, he referred to a contestant as Miss Piggy. And when he was called on his shit, he defended doing so by saying she gained a massive amount of weight and it was a real problem. Nancy Pelosi is not backing down from her comments about Trump. She says she had no idea he would be, quote, so sensitive about his weight. She also suggests that he look up the word confabulator, which I can tell you he don't know how to look that up. He can't even pronounce that. It's it's not going to happen for him. It means to fill in the gaps in one's memory with fabrications that one believes to be facts. Pelosi said he just really doesn't even know what the truth is. He just says anything. And because he says it, he believes it. I think he should recognize that his words weigh. (laughs) This is so petty. His words weigh a ton. (laughs) She says, instead of telling people to put Lysol in their lungs or taking a medication that has not been approved except under certain circumstances, he should be saying what your previous guest mentioned. Things that would help people. America's a shit show. It's so bad. I'm in this travel group and everyone's talking about how excited they are to go on their next adventure as soon as the world opens. And all I could think is, who is stupid enough to let Americans in right now? We have one third of the world's COVID cases. We lack testing. Contact tracing is just a blip of an idea. We still don't even have proper PPE. Why the hell would anyone let us in? We're a, just a shithole country. It's, ugh. God bless America. Like, for real. God, Allah, Buddha, somebody, help. Help. That's what I'm really trying to say. Help. Because this is a shit show. Speaking of shit shows, I'm really excited about Andre Leon Talley's new memoir, In the Chiffon Trenches. I ordered a hard copy. I don't like to download books. I like to sit and hold a book and turn the pages. And if I like the book, I like to store it on my shelf as a trophy of sorts. So I'm waiting on my book to come. But I've been furiously reading the reviews about his second memoir. I read the first one, L.A.T., years ago. That one's got to be like over 15 years. He has this amazing story of Growing up, being raised by his grandmother in North Carolina, a simple country life. But he used to flip through the pages of Vogue and he would dream about this larger than life lifestyle, this very wealthy, luxurious life that that didn't have very many black people in it. But he dreamt of it and he was one of the few and I do mean few, that was able to live it. He studied French. He moved to New York. He became an assistant to to the iconic fashion editor, Diana Vreeland, and he took off from there. Over time, he becomes the creative director at Vogue. He was, at one time, the most powerful Black voice in the fashion business. But at the age of 70, it has all seemed to crumble. So his latest book is a look into the glamour of the industry. And also, I don't know if grit is the right word, but I would say grit, not in terms of tenacity, but grit in terms of being ground up to dust. 
because that's kind of what happened to Andre Leon Talley. Although, by the reviewers who have actually had the privilege of reading the book, they say he's not really self-aware to draw that conclusion. Much ado has been made about Tally's comments about Anna Wintour. I don't know if he spends a significant portion of the book talking about her or are the parts of the book where he does speak about her the only parts that are being reported because she is a bigger star and he was front row for a lot of her life. Anna Wintour notably is the editor of Vogue. She was portrayed by Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. She was not painted as a likable personality and Andre Leon Talley's depiction of her pretty much lines up to what was depicted. He has really ugly stories about her. He talks about how one time after he'd gained a significant amount of weight, she called him to her desk and she told him that he needed to start an intensive exercise regime. Tally says it was not a suggestion, but a demand. And he says, if Anna Wintour wanted me to go to the gym, I'd go to the gym. At the time that this happened, he was a man in his 40s, like a grown ass man getting summoned by his boss, telling him to lose weight. Fast forward several years, he's still overweight and Wintour does an intervention. She offers him a first class plane ticket that had already been purchased for the same day. And he says when it happened in his head, he's thinking, maintain your dignity. Just keep it together until you can get out of here. And that's so crazy to me because from the outside looking in, he is Andre Leon Talley. He goes to all the fashion weeks around the world and he sits in the front row. For every major fashion designer, he has their number in, their, in his phone. He lives this, this luxurious, grand, larger than life life. And you're getting treated like this at the office? From the outside looking in, he looks like MF Andre Leon Talley. Like you're that dude. But in the actual context, they treating this grown man like the goddamn intern. And he's taking it. Talley talks about the Met Gala, which is put on by Anna Wintour and Vogue. He says he was only allowed to bring a guest on three occasions. Sir, you're the creative director of the magazine and they won't let you bring a guest? What? Apparently he protested and was like, why can't I I bring a guest? And they said because his classification was staffer. That's crazy. From the outside looking in, you're like a goddamn icon. Final story. He talks about going to France. I don't know if it was Paris. He talks about going to France with Anna Wintour. She was getting this really prestigious French merit. He says Wintour asked him to attend. At that point, he'd known Anna Wintour for more than three decades. She asked him to attend as her guest. And when they got there, she treated him like he was an assistant. He said Anna had a small, soft evening handbag and she thrust it at me and said, here, hold my bag. Don't that sound like the girl from Devil Wears Prada? The junior assistant? Meanwhile, he's three decades of friendship, got a big fancy title, got his own name that rings out, apparently in circles outside Vogue because it don't mean shit there. Really, bruh? I don't want to judge him, 
I think everyone's had a moment where you try to fit in some place where you don't fit and you put up with shit that you probably shouldn't. I used to run with this group of girls who are pretty popular, but we were at an event and they tried to X me out of a table. I'm sitting at the table and they're just like, oh, that's X, Y, Z seat. Can you scoot over for like one? And I was like, oh, sure. No problem. And they were like, oh, we need one more. That's, you know, so-and-so's. And then I scooted over again. Before I realized that they pushed me all the way to the end of the table. I had that feeling that I haven't had since junior high school when you're being bullied by like the most popular girl in the school. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, I really haven't been around like that, like to offend anyone or to say anything to anyone. And I was so upset that I ended up like crying in the bathroom. I was very fortunate that at that same event, one of my previous publicists was there and she found me crying and was like, what the fuck? You never cry. What's going on? So I ended up having this whole meltdown with her and she was like, fuck them, fuck all of them. So I moved tables and I went to sit with her and I hung out with her for the rest of the weekend. But I was just like, that's crazy. And then I was thinking back on like, how many times have I like been in rooms with them where they really just didn't fuck with me and I didn't realize it? Or did I realize it and overlook it because I just wanted to be in the room? So I get in some respect why Andre put up with that shit. Like you're a gay black boy from North Carolina growing up in the 60s. You weren't accepted. He's a flamboyant man. I'm sure that didn't just come with age. I'm sure that was always there. You read magazines because you want this escape. And then one day you get access to that world that you've dreamt about since you were a kid. It's more glamorous in person than it even looks in the pages of magazines because there's the stuff that they talk about and they take pictures of. And then there's a whole separate world that doesn't get shown that's even more glamorous than what's depicted. I get it. I was a girl in Maryland flipping through the pages of like Vibe and the Source Flipping through Vogue as well. Never wanted to do fashion, but I, I like the glamorous lifestyle of it all. Watch She's Gotta Have It when I was 10 years old and dreamt about moving to Brooklyn to live like Nola Darling. I wanted a loft. I wanted to live in Fort Greene and I wanted to date three guys at a time because that shit looked fun. To want something your whole life and then to actually achieve it, you do a lot to keep it. Some might say Andre did more than most because the way he describes being treated by his boss is nuts. But if you're just happy to be in the room and you never grow beyond that, then you continue to be treated like someone who's just happy to be in the room. In reading the reviews about Tally's book, and I'll read you what Rebecca Carroll wrote for the New York Times, it was harsh. Robin Gavon for the Washington Post, who I just quoted, was much easier. Rebecca Carroll was not. Writing for the New York Times, she went in. And I'll read you that quote in a minute. What I was thinking about when reading these excerpts from from Andre's book was, have you ever heard of this movie called Farming? I think I mentioned it on Instagram and Facebook a couple months ago. Damson Idris is one of my favorite actors, and he is the star of Farming. But loosely, loosely, it is based on the real life story of a black man who, as a child, was farmed out to a white family. Go back to, say, 1980s in the U.K., You've got this influx of African immigrants. In this case, it was a Nigerian family. People who are upwardly mobile in Nigeria come to be educated in the UK and get paid in a British pound. The families come, they're young, they may have young children, and instead of leaving their kids to be raised by family in Nigeria, they would outsource parenting to working class white people. I guess this was one of those white is right things. 
they would have their children essentially be fostered by working class white families. In this case, it's two girls and a boy and the family is racist as hell. They tell the kids stuff like they come from a booger wooga background, basically implying they come from a primitive place and they should be grateful to be in a civilized community such as the one that they're growing up in with these working class white people. The little boy doesn't speak for most of his childhood. He grows up. He's the only black boy in his community. He experiences daily racism. He gets to the point where he just can't take it anymore. He gets beat up by skinheads. And because of a desire to belong, he actually turns into a skinhead. Initially, they treat him like their pet. They make jokes about him that, you know, degrade his blackness. And he just laughs along with them because he just wants to belong. So when they get into mischief, he is the first one. So when they get into fights, he is the most brutal. When they make jokes, he is the butt of them. When they commit crimes, he is the first to commit them. When they fight rival groups, he is the front runner and gets his ass beat. And then he has like a total spiral. This is kind of what I thought about, which is a crazy analogy, but I actually think works when reading these excerpts of ALT's story. And during this whole span where you were like, it black person, at least from the outside looking in, when you were like this one black person that managed to like infiltrate this world where we thought you actually had like access and power, you didn't. And you never in all that time figured out a way to maneuver it to make it work for you so that you could exit and be that dude, not just be the impression or the image of somebody with power but to actually have it you stuck around with these white folks until they got sick of you and they just put you out the pasture and like what do you have it's a tale about fashion but it's a cautionary tale i think what's troubling so many of the reviewers is what rebecca carroll points out is that tally seems not to realize what happened to him After all those details, and those are just the ones that I read, I found that on a list of like nine details about the times Anna Wintour treated him like shit. Those are just the ones that I chose to read. He says all of that about Anna Wintour, and then he goes on to say that he would still happily take her call, even if she had a tendency, however inadvertent, to revel in mind and power games with her supposed fast friend. After the crazy stuff that he's described about how Anna Wintour doesn't even speak to him, about other people that he's quote-unquote been friends with for all of these years who don't even acknowledge his existence. He talks about being totally pushed out, and he still wants back in. He still ain't learned. This is what Rebecca Carroll said, and if you're unfamiliar, Carroll is the host of the podcast Come Through, 15 Essential Conversations About Race in a Pivotal Year for America, and she is the author of Surviving the White Gaze, a memoir due out in February. For She says of Tally's book, and Tally, for all of its name-dropping, backstabbing, outsized egos, vivid description, etc., the chiffon trenches is less about the fashion elite than it is about a black boy from the rural South who got swallowed whole by the white gaze and was spit out as a too-large black man when he no longer fit the narrative. Quote, people forget to think about diversity, Tally writes, but they forget less when there are people in place who put them in the moment where they must really think about it. 
a moment of awareness of Black culture. Carol concludes, indeed, a moment. I can't wait to pick up this book and see if I arrive at the same conclusion. I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate his honesty. But I just thought it was something different. I'm really sad, I think is the right word, that he doesn't seem, after all this time and all that he's been through and what he documents, that he doesn't seem to really get what happened. Maybe he just didn't want to admit it. Last week, as I was taping, news began circulating about an Instagram live that rapper Little Boozy did. If you were unfamiliar with Little Boozy, because some of my readers are much older than me and some of my readers are much younger. He is a rapper. His most known song is probably Wipe Me Down. Little Boozy is 37 now. He's a grown man. He has seven children. One of them, when he was 12 years old, Boozy hired an adult woman to perform oral sex on that child. That child is now 16. Not just his son, but also his nephews. He said in the video, quote, I'm training these boys right. Ask any of my nephews, ask any of them, ask my son. Yeah, when they were 12, 13, they got head. He continues, that's how it's supposed to be. Hell yeah, I got my fucking son's dick sucked. Yes, a grown woman, grown, super grown, checked his ass out, checked all my nephews out, super grown. Is she grown? She checked me out too. He claimed he was training his son to... This is just so damn vulgar, even for me. He uses a euphemism for having sex and for performing oral sex on a woman all day, every day. Notably, in Louisiana, where Boozy lives, it is illegal to solicit sex workers. And it is illegal for anyone over the age of 17 to engage in sex, including oral sex, with anyone under that age. First and foremost... Why would you do this dumb shit? Depending on the laws of your state, what you just described is sexual abuse of minors or statutory rape. Why would you do that? And then secondly, why would you get on Instagram and tell hundreds of thousands of people you did some illegal shit? That makes no sense. But it also speaks to how comfortable he is with this notion that he thinks that he could just say it on Al Gore's internet and like, it's not a big deal. Like, yeah, I did it. Not only did I do it with my sons, I did it with my nephews too. And somebody went and pulled up his tweets. They found a tweet from when the child was 14. Boozy's wishing his kid a happy 14th birthday. He wrote on Instagram, happy birthday. I love you, son, with all my heart. I got a money bag for you and a bad bitch to give you some head. You already know how I do it. What? I skipped addressing this last week because this is beyond my range. I can talk about pop culture. I can talk about music. I can talk about entertainment. I can talk about dating, relationships, marriage, divorce. That is my wheelhouse. Talking about the sexual abuse of children, all I got is a big what the fuck. I don't get it. And I wrote as much on Instagram. It was an F-bomb fueled rant like boozy WTF. 
what the fuck is wrong with you and the woman who did it. So I posted this piece. Many people responded. I would say 75% of them, which also included men, were just like, nah, this is some despicable shit. Like 12 and 13, those are children. This is abuse. This is wrong. I have children. I would never. Men and women. But that 25%, men and women were like, yeah, y'all are really making a big deal about this. Like, what 12 or 13 year old boy doesn't want to get head from a woman? What? It's a child. Why are we condoning this shit? Why are we acting like this is okay? Have you people gone mad? So more F-bombs, more cursing. And I was like, I have nothing of value to contribute to this conversation. In that comment section, someone was like, oh, you should read this piece. Dr. Tiffany Dent. She is a licensed psychologist whose primary area of interest include sexual violence prevention and intervention and the role of intersectionality in the lives of black and brown girls and women. She is also the author of three books, Girls Got Issues, A Woman's Guide to Self-Discovery and Healing, You Got This, A Girl's Guide to Growing Up, and Black Girl Unapologetically. She had a very interesting take on what Boozy said. And she began with, I have been in spaces where black communal beliefs about sex, who can be victimized, who can be a perpetrator, and body autonomy intersect. Therefore, when I saw the story about Boozy and his hiring people to perform sex acts on his 12-year-old male child, I was not surprised. Not surprised. Ma'am. I mean, you work in this space. This is your space, not my space. But if you work in this space and you're just like, no, I'm not surprised. How frequent is this? She is the expert. She has far more insight than I do. So I asked her, Dr. Tiffany Dent, could you come on my show? And could you talk to me? Explain it to me how this is making sense to people because it don't make no sense to me. Please welcome Dr. Tiffany Dent to Ratchet and Respectable. So you've worked in this field for a substantial amount of time. You're saying that men who think like boozy in terms of subjecting their children to what I thought was what I would call sexual assault. You're talking about 12 and 13 year old boys and adult women. Um, You're saying this isn't uncommon that this happens? Within our community, there has been this belief system that, um, ironically, we talk about um, not wanting society to not view our boys as boys, um, specifically in incidences of involvement with police, when they're being viewed as men instead of boys. But when it comes to sex, um, we seem to have this belief that our boys are hypersexualized and that exposure to sexual behavior with older teens, specifically heterosexual, because that is important to know within our community. Heterosexual um, relationships, in quotes, with older teens or adult women is deemed a badge of honor, a rite of passage. Um, you'd be amazed at how many um, boys or teen boys or adult men will talk about that first sexual experience, being with someone who was much older than them. Um, I think it was, um, was it D. Ray Davis who actually talked about, I think, his first sexual uh, experience, I think he's like 10 or 11, and they were friends of his mother, they were in their 30s. Um, I think it was also, someone pointed out to me that Lil Wayne talked about that too, and that, that kind of messed him up a little bit. Uh, but yeah, you can go into barbershops, um, you can go into barbecues with your family, and when you ask those questions, 
it's amazing how often they talk about someone who's not their peer being that first sexual experience and also being encouraged, facilitated, or pressured by adult men, older brothers, um, older cousins who kind of facilitate or encourage that first sexual encounter with someone who's not their peer, who's a much older person, in part to prove that you're a man, um, to make sure that you're not gay, um, to say that this is what we do. It's unfortunate, but it ain't. But really, it ain't new. <laughs> it is what's happening. Is this not considered assault? Because I feel like if we were talking about a 12 or 13 year old girl, people would be more clear like, oh, my God, that should never happen. That's rape. That's abuse. Whoever did that should be jailed. But with boys, not so much. I think the thing is, when we're talking about legally, yes. When we're talking about culturally, how we perceive it, unfortunately, we don't perceive it the same way. Um, we seem to push for this innocence or vulnerability in our girls on some level that if it's a 12-year-old girl and someone said, hey, I got this male prostitute to perform all sex on her, um, we would say, oh, my God, that's abuse. But it's how we do the sexualization of our feelings. And on some level, we seem to think that they are more able to, in quotes, appreciate or want those sexual experiences than we do our girls. So is a sexual topic absolutely is. It's frustrating because in our community, we at times don't see that. Um, we don't even allow the space for our young boys to say, this is not what I want. And in my work, I run across teenage boys who talk about feeling pressure, feeling uncomfortable, not wanting these sexual contact, but being told that this is what boys do and that all boys want this. I actually had someone on one of my threads talk about what 12-year-old boy does not want girl sex. They said something a little bit more um, graphic, but they pretty much said what 12-year-old boy doesn't want this. And that's the problem, this assumption that every boy wants sexual contact at that age and with adult people that they don't even know. Can you explain what is the effect of, you know, an 11 or 12 year old boy having sexual contact that he really doesn't want or maybe he thinks he does? I think one of the things is, is this assumption, this message that you are expected to want sex even if you don't want it, um, that all relationships are sexualized, that um, you don't have control over your own body. Um, that how do you view what is normal in relationships because of this push to prove that manhood is related to sex for you and that this is this right for passage. For some boys, it skews their relationship, their view of intimacy and their ability to have relationships that are healthy um, because they now they now have this view of sex that does not necessarily involve connection or intimacy. Um, and then we also have in some kids, even though we don't want to allow this space for it, this is trauma. This is abuse. And so some of those same feelings that go along with trauma, that anxiety, that fear, that feelings of worthlessness, some of those things still appear because even if they're not always saying it, they are experiencing it. We just don't go to them and say, wow. You were 12, and a 20-something-year-old woman, you did not know, performed a sex act on you. That is abuse. We don't even allow for that language, which then doesn't allow for them to express that this is something they didn't want. 
How does this affect men as adults in relationships and their relationships with women? They began to look at them as objects. They began to um, kind of at times relate them to the adults who have sexual contact with them. Um, so there's this lack of respect. There's this lack of connection. There is this um, view of them as hopes because that's what my experience was and that's what you use women for. So as an adult woman dating, like you encounter men who've, you know, been traumatized, like how do you manage that as a woman encountering a guy who has that history? One is to recognize that it is not our role to fix broken men. Amen. And so part of that is if they need therapy, we need to also realize that at this point in time, I may not be able to be in this relationship with you because you have a lot of things that you need to unpack. And I can't be the um, person who suffers as you're trying to figure this out. I think it's also having open and honest conversations about intimacy and what is expected in a relationship. Um, If you are looking for this to not just be a sexual encounter, but an actual relationship, having that conversation about this is not of what those messages that they have gotten and have been encouraged about sex has happened for them, and that you begin to process with them how this is going to be different in their relationship with you. But again, that if that person is in a place where they can have that conversation, that open and raw conversation, versus if they are broken, it is not your job to fix them. It is your job to encourage them and to say, you know what, you went through some mess. And even if nobody allowed you to have that conversation, I'm telling you, you need to go and have that conversation with somebody. That's a thing. And having this conversation just online, the men specifically around this subject just completely shut down. And they're like, I don't see the problem. Y'all are making too big a deal out of this. Like, you're trying to impose your issues. It's different for boys. Like, they just shut down. So what do you do with that? We either say our boys are children or we say they're not. We can't have these in some situations. We want to say our boys are children when they are carrying BB guns in parks like Tamir Rice was and was shot down by the police. We want to say they're children. When they are being inappropriately disciplined in school, we say you're not letting my son be a boy. You can't then say that they're an adult and can make adult sexual decisions. That doesn't match. Like, they are either children or they're not. And we need to begin to have this conversation and say, you were children. And if children, there are some normal and healthy sexual experimentation that happens between peers. Keep a 12-year-old boy. A 25-year-old woman is not a sexual partner. She is someone who was preying on this child. And if you're a part of that, then you need to unpack where did it become acceptable for adults to have sex with children. We try to take them away from being boys and say, well, he's a grown man and he's 12. He's a boy. You want him to be a boy in every other situation, then he's a child in this one too. So what you're saying is that children can have sex with adults. And that's a problem. And it's, it's generational. It's been happening. We've accepted it. And it's not just men and boys who are saying this. All of a mockery has been women <laughs> who I've had women saying that it's different and it's acceptable. And that's a problem, too. So we can't just say it's men and boys who are having these conversations because it's also the acceptable sexual contact that's happening in quotes is with older girls and women. So we also have to have the conversation with those who are having sex with the boys and unpack why are you viewing it as acceptable that you have sex with a child. I put a line in what I wrote. 
I, I made a line about like, you know, Boozy needs to be under the jail and the woman who did this does too. But I kept my focus on Boozy because he's the parent or he's the uncle. Yes, but I think it's very important what you said is Boozy is facilitating the child and the woman coming together. But this grown woman very much is dead wrong as well. Where do women get the idea that it's acceptable to have sex with children? Because 11 and 12 year boys, 12 year old boys don't look like adults. Where's that coming from? And I think it's coming from the same place where we have grown men picking up girls from middle school. I mean, this message in your mind that they're more mature, that they know what they're doing, that they're great, that they're not vulnerable. Those same messages are the reasons why women are doing it too. I mean, if you're looking at it, it's older adult women. I think it was Pierre Davis who said that it was like his mom's friend, babies, um, teenage babies. It's like they know that these are children. Just like men who are going to the middle schools know that those are children, and they're still saying that it's acceptable. The only difference is that our community does not frown as much as one when you have the 20-year-old girl with the 13-year-old boy. And that's part of the problem, too. Like, it's being reinforced as this ain't problem. But those are conversations that we also have to have with these adult women and older teenagers when they're having sex with our boys. That it is not acceptable, and we as a community need to hold them accountable as well. What does holding people accountable in this sense look like? I think it's twofold. Somebody actually asked, does, does he need help? Does he need to get in trouble, and I think both of those things happen. If you are an adult having having sex with a child, you're you're committing crimes, and you need to be held accountable for that. However, the system use that. If you are, but at the same time, if we also need to begin to do more than education in our community and begin to have these conversations and dialogues for black men and boys. I'm a black female therapist, yet in certain spaces I say I need my black male psychologist friends to lead those discussions because you're going to be able to just push me away and say, you don't know who you ain't a man. And so we need to begin to have those discussions, these raw conversations in our community about how we are defining manhood, how we are defining sexuality um, within our community. And we have to have those conversations. So I think it's education. And I think there still also has to be consequences in the short term because we can't just say, if it was a 12-year-old girl, we wouldn't even be having a conversation about should there be a consequence. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think is important to have in this discussion? The biggest thing is that this ain't new. It's not just celebrities. It's happening in our in our neighborhoods. It's happening in our families. Um, those of us who see it happening need to check our own family members when they're having this discussion. And also when we're talking to our little boys, we have these conversations and say stuff like, when you going to hit that 10-year-old boy? Like, we need to begin to check ourselves and check those people in our community when we are sexualizing our young boys and encouraging them to do stuff that they don't know nothing about and aren't ready to do. I guess, how do we talk to our boys about this? My timeline, a lot of my readers or listeners, readers are moms and they were appalled. They were like, if I found out that, you know, my husband or my child's father or their uncle or whomever, I would be appalled. But like, how do they speak to their kids, their sons about protecting themselves really? Unfortunately, there's only so much that the women and the lives of boys can do because they're trying to figure out what manhood looks like and they're looking at you and saying you don't know you can't teach me that 
So I think part of it is definitely having the conversations in general about you have a right to your own body. You get to always say what you are comfortable doing and not doing, and that's the conversation from early on. We also need to stop asking um, our little boys, is she your girlfriend? Or, you know, saying that, oh, he's going you know, when he get older, they ain't going to be able to stay off of him. So we need to watch our language as well because we're also putting messages in there that don't need to be there. But we also then need to identify are there mentors and other males within the community who we can trust to begin to have those conversations and reinforce the ones we're having because it's like anything else. We, we can say you don't know anything about this. You can say this, but you don't know what it's like. And as a, a, a woman... And I thought, I'm mad for them. I don't. Like, I can I don't know what it's like because, for the most part, my community is definitely my entire life telling me as a black girl don't have sex with nobody. Where our entire community, large factions of it, are encouraging you at 8, 9, and 10 to hit that. And so we, we can put out the messages about owning your body and, you know, sex is more than physical, and we also can stop doing the if that's your little girlfriend conversation that we like to do with our sons. But at the same time, we need to begin to acknowledge and identify male influences who are going to, for one, help protect our sons from that, set the example for that, but also be the ones who are reinforcing those messages. I have one more question for you, and it stems from just a line that you just said. There's a tendency in our community to encourage boys to have sex seemingly as early as possible whereas we tell our girls to basically wait forever until you find a husband that disconnect isn't working for anyone that doesn't make any sense it, it doesn't because then it becomes who would who age appropriately are your sons supposed to have sex with if we're sitting here and our daughters put off intimacy but at the same time we're telling our, our sons get it where you can um, and so we then have people who, if they're trying to be in same-age peer relationships, are being given such contradictory messages about intimacy, somebody's going to leave it not happy or guilty or angry or, or dysfunctional because those two things ain't going to match. So my thing has always been whatever messages we're telling our daughters are the same messages we shouldn't tell them our sons. If we're trying to raise healthy kids who have healthy views of intimacy and sex, the message is it shouldn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. Which is why I said if we were if this was movie said it's about a twelve year old daughter or niece, there's no one would sit there and say this is fine. So what's the difference? Because we need to raise children who can be in healthy relationships together. And we're not if we're giving these two very conflicting messages. Different messages, yes. Thank you so much. Because again, if I had talked about this subject on my own, it would have been nothing but like F-bombs and outrage. So I'm very glad that I reached out to you and you responded so graciously to give us some insight that we can actually use and process and build stronger, healthier relationships with our adults and also our girls and our boys. Absolutely. Thank you for reaching out to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hopefully I can do like your F-bomb so when I listen to your show. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon, please. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Man. Woman. 
or however you identify, want to be inclusive, ma'am dropped some gems. My favorite of which was, it is not your job to fix broken people. That is a word, a testimony, a mantra, a motto, a method of living, one to grow on. That was everything. It is not your job to fix broken people. And on that note, we will conclude this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I greatly appreciate you. If you need some Ratchet and Respectable in your life between now and the next episode, you can follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas, or you can follow my website, DemetriaLLucas.com. I will talk to you soon next week. Stay safe. Bye.